You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This state has a split legislature, meaning the GOP controls one chamber, the state Senate, and Democrats control the other, the House. It means anything that gets to the governor's desk must have at least some bipartisan support. We heard from the Republican Senate president yesterday, and on the eve of a new session, let's hear now from the Speaker of the House, Boulder Democrat Dickie Lee Hollinghorst. Speaker, thank you for being with us. I'm delighted to be here. What do you want the 2016 session to be remembered for? Well, I like to call it about preserving and enhancing the Colorado way of life. And we have a number of things that we will be working on from affordable housing to making sure that we level the playing field for all of our citizens and residents in Colorado so they have a fair shot at succeeding and taking part in that Colorado way of life. Well, let's talk some specifics. So in the realm of affordable housing, what are you making reference to in terms of legislation? Well, we have a package of bills we've been looking at extending the uh, housing tax credit. In 2015 alone, there were more than 100,000 people who moved to Colorado. So as a matter of the market, we all know that housing prices and rental prices have gone up. We're doing what we can with tax credits, uh, with some innovative ways to help people save for their first down payment or closing costs. And who would receive this tax credit? The particular tax credit that I referenced is not for individual home buyers. It would be for home builders, basically, to build units that are lower cost housing. We do also have a bill that we're looking at that would provide for um, a tax break. Uh, You would actually be able to save, uh, establish a savings account that would go to home buyers for their down payment or for closing costs. And those folks would not have to pay taxes on that savings account. That's like a 529 program. In my conversation with your Republican counterpart in the Senate, so Senate President Bill Cadman, he mentioned a condo defects law being a priority. Uh, this is the idea of making it harder for HOAs to sue builders over defects. And that well, has gotten bipartisan support in the past. Do you include that in what you consider to be an affordable housing approach? Well, we had a bill last year that was commonly called the construction defects bill, and I'm sure that's what he was referring to. There was no evidence that that bill actually helped in any way in either building or making um, housing more affordable, condos more affordable to uh, hardworking people in Colorado. And quite frankly, I think the market is much more responsible for those issues. Uh, However, I'm very open to working with folks in the Senate to see if we can find a sort of a common sense way to address that issue and to see if if we can include that as a part of a more robust package in terms of uh, affordable housing. Uh, Speaker, we had originally wanted to talk to you and the Republican president of the Senate at the same time, uh, but we Mm -hmm. heard from your spokesman that it wasn't the right choice for you especially, quote, at the beginning of a session that will feature a lot of very delicate speaker-president negotiations. Uh, Can you give me an example of a delicate issue you anticipate this session, and one that you don't think at this stage would be good to talk about publicly uh, with the Senate president, you know, in terms of the legislative process? 
one of those delicate issues relates to construction defects. Mm-hmm. We obviously had a major disagreement between the houses last year, which resulted in that bill being killed in the House. We are uh, working on those issues. I'm certainly listening to what their issues and concerns are, and some of those discussions are fairly delicate. One issue that has already proven delicate is a priority for both you and Governor John Hickenlooper. You both think that the state would be better off budgetarily if something known as the hospital provider fee is taken out from under TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Hospitals pay this fee in order to get federal funds to treat people who don't have insurance. It's also been used to expand the Medicaid program in the state. Right now, the fee is calculated as tax revenue, and because of TABOR limits, it means the state actually has less to spend and must refund money to citizens. An effort to change this formula failed in the final days of the 2015 session. Uh, Senate President Bill Cadman, the top Republican and your counterpart in the Senate, told us that this is a non-starter. And in a press conference last week, he cited a legal memo from uh, the Legislative Legal Services, which is nonpartisan, that says it's unconstitutional to exempt the hospital provider fee from Tabor. Uh, How do you plan to move forward on what appears to be intractable? Well, the commitment to me and others in the House and to the governor was that we would continue to talk and try to make this issue work because it's so vitally important to the people of the state of Colorado. And explain that. Why Uh, is it vitally important? Because it, it could strike someone as obscure and budgetary and dry, but what are the stakes in your mind? I believe it will be very painfully clear as we move through this budget process that if we don't find a way to have more flexibility with the amount of money we can spend in the budget. And we're basically being limited to the kind of budget we were facing in the Great Recession. Well, we are now one of the booming states in the country, and we've increased our population in the last year by over 100,000. We have a number of services that we need to spend our money on, including investing in education and transportation and infrastructure if we're going to maintain the Colorado way of life here. So in terms of what, how people will feel this, we will have to cut higher education by over $100 million just to balance the budget. We will not be able to fund education the way we should for the growing population. We will not be able to pay back any more of the cuts that were taken during the Great Recession because we had budget problems. We will not be able to put any money into transportation. I don't know of anybody in the state of Colorado that doesn't complain about the traffic right now and the potholes. So those are the things that uh, my friends out there in Colorado are going to feel if we aren't able to solve this budget mess. If you have in the Senate a leader who has called this a non-starter, Do you go to the ballot and try to make the hospital provider fee change through the voters? Well, if the president of the Senate doesn't want us to deal with this issue, they can kill anything we send over there. I think it would be unfortunate to have to go to the ballot on this when, in fact, we have the power as the state legislature to act. So I suppose you could go to the ballot, but if you go to the ballot, you really should address the entire issue and and address it permanently. One last question on on this subject before we move on, and that is uh, the Senate president says this is this is not his opinion. 
of Tabor and of the hospital provider fee. He says this is what legal experts are telling him. How do you respond? Well, I'm going to ask him to do the same thing that the Denver Post asked and his own newspaper, uh, the Colorado Springs Gazette, did in their editorials, which is, let's see if we can reconsider that. There is a lot of information out there that says this is very much within the Constitution. Let's take another look at that. I'm happy to do that. We don't want to close it out before the session even starts. I think there will be uh, really a whole lot of terrible consequences for Colorado if we don't address this issue. When we spoke with uh, Republican Senate President Bill Cadman, he expressed concern over the size of Medicaid and its expansion Mm -hmm. and how much of the state budget it is eating up and not Mm -hmm. leaving room in his mind for education, for instance, and transportation. What do you say to that? Well, I actually think that Medicaid has been a very important program. Um, In many ways, the expansion of health care in Colorado has meant that we're spending less for medical dollars than uh, more because we're keeping people out of uh, emergency rooms, particularly children. And we all pay for that through our own insurance costs and our own medical costs. And what do you say to the the notion that it is uh, eating up a larger and larger portion of the budget? Well, I think it's it is now, but I don't know that we will see that continuing at as a higher rate as we do now. A number of people, because of the Affordable Care Act and the insurance requirements, have understood that they're eligible for Medicaid, and they have applied for that. Uh, we also, as a matter of implementing that program, have expanded Medicaid and over 300,000 new enrollees in Medicaid, many of those children, are what's contemplated. So we will continue to have some increases just based on population increase, which we naturally have in Colorado. But I expect that rate to level off over the next few years. And Uh, I expect and I believe that it is a budget item that's very important priority for us. Uh, State Representative Lois Court, a Denver Democrat, will bring back a bill that deals with physician-assisted suicide. She is using another name, end-of-life options. And it would allow terminally ill patients to decide to end their own lives. Is that a priority for you this year? It's not a uh, what one would call a caucus priority. Uh, I think it it's a bill that uh, needs a great deal of discussion. Uh, there are many differing opinions in this state and actually in our caucus about how this should be done. I think it's definitely time to start the discussion, and that's what we're doing with a bill that was introduced last year and that we will continue to talk about this year. But not a caucus priority, as you say. It's not a caucus priority. Yeah, help us understand that, um, how you decide what is a caucus priority and what is you know, something that you might agree with and think, oh, that, you know, if it passed, that would be great, but not, you know, not that. Well, as a caucus, we we discuss these issues quite a bit. We work together on those things that we believe enhance and preserve the Colorado way of life and do the things that we understand our constituents want us to do in a broad framework. 
this kind of a bill might fit in as a small part of that, but we generally don't consider anything a caucus priority if we have differences of opinion among ourselves. We find ways to agree on moving all of those issues forward, but there are some issues that just simply don't rise to that level, and I believe this is one of them right now. You've talked about leveling the playing field several times in this conversation. Can you give me an example of legislation you'd like to pursue that you think does that? And and explain to me where the playing field is unlevel in your mind. So I think that as we have moved out of the Great Recession and being one of the few states that are one of the leading states in rebounding from the recession, that a lot of people have been left out of that. We still have a number of people in the middle who are striving uh, to increase their wages and send their kids to college and save for that and save for their retirement and so forth. And and quite frankly, the big corporations and the wealthy are probably reaping much more advantage of this upturn than uh, anyone else right now. We'd like to make sure that average hard-working Coloradans take advantage of it. So we have uh, several bills that will we believe will do that, including, of course, providing a great education and making sure kids get that. But we have one bill that would do away with tax havens in other countries. There are several countries who do that who don't charge income tax, and we have corporations in this state who don't pay a penny of income tax in this state and send their uh, profits overseas. We figure that that would be at least $150 million in additional taxes in Colorado. That's clearly leveling the playing field and making everybody play by the same rules. Is there a company Uh, you'd mention? You know, I'm not aware of any specific company. I have gotten the general research on that, but I don't know. I couldn't name one specific. I'd have to double-check that anyway. But Speaker, thank you for being with us. Delighted to be here. Speaker of the Colorado House, Dickie Lee Hullinghorst. She's a Boulder Democrat. And our conversation with the Republican president of the Senate is at CPRnews.org. Tomorrow, it's Governor John Hickenlooper and what he hopes for the 2016 session. Still ahead, why does the federal government own so much land in the West? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been more than a week since an armed group seized a public wildlife refuge in Oregon. It's a flashpoint in a decades-long conflict over federal lands. The issue isn't limited to those ranchers in Oregon, though. It has come up in state legislatures in recent years, including Colorado's. John Freemuth is an expert in public lands. He's a professor of public policy at Boise State University. He joins us from Idaho. And John, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here. So I'm looking at a map of federal lands. This is from the U.S. Geological Survey. You can see it as well at cprnews.org. And uh, it's Colorado and states to our north, south, and west that have the vast majority of federal lands. And, you know, this is forests, of course, and national parks, but also Department of Defense lands. Why does the map look this way? Why so much federal land in the west? Well, the short version of this is – and back around the time of Yellowstone, that would be the way to think about this. The the national government began to change its approach to these lands. For a long time, we both acquired them either in war or purchase and then we as quickly as we could tried to dispose of them. But around Yellowstone – we began to see a philosophy of reservation. In other words, we were going to keep under federal management 
a bunch of these lands. Now, at the same time, we were still disposing of them, but you would see the early national parks come and then the president for a time was given the authority to proclaim forest reserves and most of the forest system that Coloradoans are familiar with and Idahoans were created during that time. They later became national forests. The BLM lands, which is are the, the flashpoint lands here for the Bundys right. and their father before, those were lands that weren't reserved at first for those specific purposes but, but remained under fed, federal management. The BLM didn't even come into being until 1946 uh, when the General Land Office and the Grazing Service were merged. Then – and here's the key point. In the mid-70s, Congress made it clear national policy that the BLM lands, most of the mini bay, would also be permanently retained under federal management. So that's your quick history. The BLM, of course, the Bureau of Land Management. And so obviously the country was in the process of acquiring lands early in its history, you know, back to the Louisiana Purchase, mm-hmm. for example. And you say that at first it was about getting that land out of federal ownership and into the hands of private citizens. What explains that change around Yellowstone where the federal government said, gosh, let's let's keep some of this? Well, I think um, there's a scholar, Al Runte, who's written a great book about the national park idea, but he points out that in that era, and actually Yosemite came before Yellowstone. I'm so sorry. I, was, mean, I mean Yellowstone. I think I said Yosemite. I apologize. No, no, that's fine because Yellowstone, the national government actually let uh, California try to manage Yosemite Valley under the Lincoln administration, didn't work out and went back to uh, the national government. But but let's talk Yellowstone. Essentially, it was a combination of the stunning wonders of Yellowstone and really their uh, inability to be used for, for anything else. Yellowstone, you know, whenever we watch the weather, how many times during the winter is West Yellowstone, the closest, coldest place in America? Um, those lands are high. Their, their Native American presence was not that uh, frequent. And so it made some, many uh, uh, people thought that what a great place because of the geysers, because of other things to preserve as, quote, a nation's park. And that that spirit was growing stronger. So yes. on, on many of these lands, and particularly the BLM lands, there's a real relationship between the federal government and ranchers. And, oh, yes. And explain that just briefly. You know, one might think ranchers have enough of their own land uh, that they, they – Well, they even... don't really. And, and we need to understand first, of course, the Native Americans uh, – lived and inhabited these lands. They weren't pristine, as some environmentalists used to argue. They certainly weren't wilderness and uninhabited. But that said, ranchers um, got got out to places like the Great Basin, which is Nevada, essentially southern Idaho and so forth, and were very astute. They were able to acquire the properties, what we call base properties, where the water is, a lot of the water. And from that, they could then not need to have title to the grazing lands around them, which are primarily BLM, but in some states would be state land and and even some other private land. And so from that, ranchers were able to to eke out a, a fairly decent living by, by, I guess you could say, that approach to land management. 
How would you describe that relationship overall between most ranchers and the federal government whose lands they rely on? Has that been a rocky relationship in, in history? Well, it, it's been – I wouldn't say overly rocky. It's sort of like all of our relationships with the IRS, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but um, in other words, it's BLM regulates and so we always chafe a little bit at regulation. But my sense, it's always been fairly cordial. Um, with a little adversarialness thrown in, what, what's really created the issue is as public values have sort of discovered the BLM lands for recreation, for, you know, whether it be hiking or, or RV use for wildlife purposes and, and even the aesthetics of the, of the great American desert, which I certainly love, but for a long time, a lot of people thought, whoa, that land's not worth much for anything. Hmm. That's that's increased the chafing of ranchers with the BLM because now the BLM's got to deal with all these other interests, not just ranchers anymore. So uh, a Colorado college poll asked if voters want the federal government to turn public lands over to states to reduce the national budget deficit. Sixty percent mm-hmm. in this poll said no to that question. Yep. Uh, and there yep. was also support for designating more national monuments in the West and for new environmental safety standards for oil and gas drilling. But that that poll does not necessarily reflect what we hear from some lawmakers. So uh, in, in some states, including Colorado, there's been talk of somehow giving states control of federal lands. And uh, it's right. far from a reality. It would have a lot of legal hurdles. Two Colorado lawmakers last session wanted to study the idea uh, Republican Senator um, Baumgartner thought that the land could be leased, say, for mineral rights, and that that could help the state budget. We could uh, increase the spending, K-12 education, higher education. You know, we just got out of a committee a little bit ago that we were talking about how bad the conditions of the highways were in. We're just looking at all the options to see if we as a state controlled those federal lands if there would be money available to fund all these different projects. It is Randy Baumgartner, the senator. Uh, what do you make of this idea of states thinking that they might be able to reclaim federal lands? Um, well, we've always got to remember, number one, the states never had these lands. The, the, the term we all like to use is transfer, not reclaim, not take back, because that's just historically inaccurate. This has been talked about for 120 years and it comes back every so so often sort of like cicadas do. Uh, um, <laughs> it just does. What's interesting this time is before when it comes up, there's all there's been Western anger because of federal government action. For example, the FLIPMA, Federal Land Policy and Management Act that said that the BLM lands would remain under federal management, that set off the sagebrush rebellion. This time, it this seems to be driven by right-wing ideologues and think tanks looking for more wedge issues. In other words, ALEC, um, which is an East Coast uh, think tank, essentially came up with, I guess you could say, um, template resolutions demanding, asking, uh, uh, calling for transfer of federal lands to the states and a number of states adopted those resolutions. But what struck me and other observers of this is up until that happened, at that point, relationships – Ken Salazar was still Secretary of Interior, a Coloradoan. 
the relationship seemed pretty good. In other words, there wasn't an event that got everybody upset. It was more another battle in the great ideological wars that we seem to be fighting a lot in the country these days. Alec is the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, and members include conservative state lawmakers and uh, corporations as well. But of course, states that are struggling with their budgets see these federal lands and uh, potentially think that they, what, could could tap them monetarily in of some course. way? Yeah. Yeah, and 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 obviously the the conclusion and why there's pushback from others is is where are they going to get the money? They're either going to increase activities to produce revenue, which to most people is oil and gas, essentially, and some mining. <clears throat> That's about it. Gra- grazing doesn't produce that much revenue, or they're going to sell it. And the minute you you start talking about selling those lands, we've already got an example in Idaho where. Some fairly wealthy wealthy people, I've just read this today, are acquiring land um, up in northern Idaho and they're closing access to it. Now, this is land, private land they're acquiring, but this is a constant pushback from sportsmen that worry if the states get the land, access for sportsmen will be diminished either by the state diminishing because it's trying to produce revenues or – It'll be sold. And so you you get a lot of pushback and uncertainty when people talk about those issues. The, the corollary is, can federal land management be better? Of course. There you find common agreement. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. John Freemuth, professor of public policy at Boise State University. He joined us from Idaho. Coming up, tales from a globetrotting photojournalist. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Good photojournalists are able to sum up a long and winding story in just one picture. For instance, the image of an African-American boy standing before a line of police in riot gear in Ferguson. Or one from 1996, when presidential hopeful Bob Dole fell at a campaign rally. Rick Wilking of Cold Creek Canyon, Colorado, took those photos, and he reviews four decades of his work in the new book, The Last Hummingbird. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. You've covered a lot of news over the years around the globe, the aftermath of hurricanes, riots, presidents, the Pope, and uh, for major news services, including Reuters. But here's this non-news photo on the back of your book of a hummingbird at a, at a wintry, snowy feeder. Why the hummingbird title and picture in this book? Well, the book is a kind of a reflection of my career and uh, from its very humble beginnings up in Boulder, Colorado, to uh, flying around the world in Air Force One. It's been kind of a wild ride, uh, unpredictable. But the hummingbird metaphor comes from the idea of, well, seasonality of life, I think. At this point in my career, I'm sort of reflecting on my what I've done and where I've been. But I'm also sort of thinking, well, what's next? How much more is left? Those sort of things. And I live in Cold Creek Canyon, as you mentioned. We have a hummingbird migration there by the hundreds. And uh, so I see them come and go every year. And as they fade away at the end of the season, it starts to got me thinking about, well, what's next for me? Where will I go next? And the frozen feeder picture on the back, is that the last hummingbird or the uh, first hummingbird of the season arriving too soon? 
So you are in a contemplative mood, for sure, about your own career. <laughs> and, and I suppose even where you're headed, which we can talk about in a bit. But to some of the stories in this book, uh, usually there's a photo to go with these stories. You were invited by the Vatican to shoot a mass during Pope John Paul's second, uh, the second, uh, his trip to Africa. And he spilled something. Yes. What was that? Yes, the the Vatican uh, actually t- uh, allowed me to stand right on the the altar during a mass down there in Cameroon, and uh, he held the chalice just a little bit too high, tipped it a little bit too much, and I noticed that he was looking at his vestments, and then he looked back up at the chalice. I didn't really know what had happened until I looked at the film later, but there was a bright purple spot on his <laughs> gown. <laughs> he tipped the chalice just a little bit too far. Is that a big deal if if you're the Pope and you spill wine? I mean, the, the wine obviously deeply symbolic. Uh, not being Catholic, I'm not sure, but uh, it made for an amusing picture for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's in black and white. I yeah, think in the book. I'm not sure if it ran in color in the newspapers. No. Back then, we were we were shooting more more or less only in black and white. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we sometimes would carry a second camera with, with color film in it. Uh, unfortunate, that was unfortunate that that picture was shot in black and white. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about the technology of the early days and how heavy it was and how much there was of it and how hard that was on your back. Yeah. You no. kind of ruined your spine doing this work. Yeah, I've got compressed discs in my neck. I've got uh, uh, pinched nerves. You know, we used to carry hundreds of pounds of gear around. We used to hang our cameras around our neck. We used to have... Uh, big shoulder bags, which we don't use anymore. Everything's the one on a waist pack, or we've gotten a little smart ergonomically on what we carry, but we also carry a lot less gear because I used to travel with an enlarger and a typewriter and chemicals and paper and all the other stuff that you would need to have a darkroom set up in a bathroom of a hotel somewhere. Oh, wow. Well, another image uh, I'd like to talk about is from 1996, and that's when Bob Dole was the Republican challenger to Bill Clinton in the presidential race. And Dole was at a campaign event leaned onto a railing, and it fell, and he went with it. Yeah, that was really unfortunate. The The uh, the railing on the edge of the stage was decorative. It hadn't been screwed down, and he didn't know that. And it was his uh, kind of routine when he got on stage. He would lean across, lean off the stage. This was, stage was only about four feet high. He'd lean over to try to shake hands to the supporters down below, and he used the railing to support him. And as I said, it wasn't attached, so he went headfirst right into the into the ground. Describe what you captured in your lens and whether what ran through your mind was, gosh, do I take a photo at this really vulnerable moment? Yeah, that question never came up for me because I wasn't in a position. I was off to the side from where he fell. So my instincts just kicked in. As soon as I started to see him, I was prepared to shoot a picture of him shaking hands. That's the picture I was I was expecting to shoot. And then when he fell, I just leaned, leaned on the shutter and just shot everything. Uh, from the time he went down on the ground to the time he popped back up again and went back up on the stage. It was just sort of an instinctive thing. Uh, f- unfortunately for my colleagues, they all got kind of in the middle of the fray. One photographer's foot was broken. Another guy caught Dole's head, kept him from hitting the ground. Um, so well, You write that you couldn't resist looking at the viewing screen on the back of your camera right. to see if you got the shot. Uh, but it's the next shot that I like. It's a pic of you and Dole. Yeah, back on the plane, right? Yeah, right after you're showing him your photos, and he's laughing, like really laughing. Yeah, yeah. Now, that was his personality. I mean, his staff was horrified that this had happened, uh, even more uh, worried about the pictures, people, somebody having a picture of it. Yeah. That was right at the time we were starting to use digital cameras. That was one of the very first digital photos I shot. And so I could see the pictures on my, com- on my screen of the camera right away. I could see them on my computer. 
And he, his staff told him there are pictures. They had seen my pictures on my, uh, and so he, when he got back on the plane to leave, he wanted to see the pictures right away. He wanted to know how bad the damage could potentially be. Yeah, they were concerned, but this is before Twitter. This is before that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got a chance um, to follow Bill Clinton as well on the campaign trail. And then I think towards the end of his last term for six months in 2000, you were the personal photographer to the president. I worked as personal photographer to the president for for George W. Bush in his first term. Ah. Not for Bill Clinton. Not for Bill Clinton. Right. I apologize for the error. What is that like? Uh, Because you go from someone presumably who is at odds with the administration journalistically. Yeah. And if not at odds, you know, certainly vetting it, holding it to account, and then being someone who who captures for the White House the job of the presidency. Exactly right. And that's – that was – my motivation in accepting the job was I really was curious about what went on behind the curtain after covering the White House for almost eight years as a journalist – uh, you see a lot, but there's a lot of secrets, and I wanted to get behind the scenes. I was really curious, you know, once you have the security clearance, be in the Oval Office when the satellite photos come in from some hotspot, all that sort of stuff. So uh, it was very interesting. It really had nothing to do with uh, your politics so much. I mean, you did work for – I did work for George W. Bush. That's true. But I really thought of myself as more working for the American people and for history because mm-hmm. all those photos I shot during that period of time – are in the National Archives now. They'll be seen for generations. And I thought it was an important thing to do. And what was the the most secretive or intimate moment that you were a part of that you would not have been had you been a, a purely a photojournalist at that time? Um, I don't know if you recall, but there was uh, an American uh, military plane that had to land in uh, North Korean airspace, or I can't remember the exact details, um, but there was a, a, a spy, not, I don't know if it was really a spy plane, but there was a plane that was, that had to land, it had mechanical trouble. And so there was a tense moment there, whether we were going to get the crew back, whether we were going to get the plane back, um, and what technology was on that plane that they were going to get their hands on. Uh, so, and there were some phone calls made in the Oval Office that, that I wouldn't have been in the Oval Office for as a journalist, believe me. <laughs> Maybe this is the Hainan Island incident. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's I think the, it's a Chinese property. Chinese, yes, that's yeah. right. Yes, you found it. Yep. And so to be a part of that just felt closer than you'd ever gotten. But back, put your hat back on as, as photojournalist. How do you get more authentic moments, especially when a lot of news events, press conferences, for instance, and campaign rallies are so closely you know, monitored and curated. Yeah, that's the challenge. That's that's part of why I enjoy covering politics so much, though, is it is really a challenge to to tell a story that they don't necessarily want told. Tell something, tell something real. Don't don't do what. Don't follow the script. But that's why you like it because yeah. you see it as a challenge. Yeah, exactly. And what is a way that you get more authenticity in those sometimes inauthentic settings? Well, you just have to work harder. You have to you have to think on your feet. You have to get yourself in the right position. Sometimes it takes negotiations with the campaign to allow you to be backstage or uh, some other situation that and they they push back on it. But you do whatever you can. You you go. Uh, to a place in a room, they may say, well, we want you to stand here. No, I want to stand over there. Um, you just have to sort of push all the time constantly and try to be in the right place to try to get something that's not on the script. You learn to be defiant in some Yeah, respects. oh, for sure. Yeah. No question. That's that's a big part of journalism, I think. There's a, a photo you tweeted during the Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson that caught my eye. We've posted it to CPRnews.org. And will you describe it for me? 
Yeah, this was kind of a heartbreaking moment. There was an 11-year-old boy out there. This was midnight or even later. It was he was uh, his mother was there just railing at the police um, and kind of ignoring him. Uh, it was 90 degrees heat and he was shivering like it was below zero. He was so fear just beside himself with grief, crying and shivering and just uh, and and he's standing in front of this line of, of police that are armed to the teeth. They have rifles. They're in full riot gear. There's a dozen squad cars with all their lights flashing. Uh, it was just a kind of crazy scene, and his mother is screaming at the top of her lungs about Black Lives Matter and all the other stuff that they were talking about at the time. And this poor kid was just off by himself, and I just I just wanted to just go over and hug him. <laughs> um, and I did talk to him for a little bit. Um, I shot his picture, of course, and then I talked to him for a little bit, tried to calm him down. The mother uh, was not happy to have me talk to him, so that didn't go on for very long. Well, you started our conversation by talking about the, the migration of the hummingbird outside your window in Cole Creek Canyon and how that's something of a symbol of the beginning, the end of your career. What's the next chapter? So what, what is next? Do you have an assignment? Well, yes, I'm going, uh, I'll be going to both Iowa and New Hampshire um, and uh, probably traveling with one of the candidates out of New Hampshire before they come here. And uh, well, Nevada then and then uh, Colorado for Super Tuesday. That's next. Um, it's going to be a very busy year. I'll be going to both the political conventions, all the presidential debates, and uh, Rio Olympics as well. So I've got a lot happening this year. No sense of slowing down. Photojournalist Rick Wilking lives in Cold Creek Canyon. His book is called The Last Hummingbird. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Controlling something you can't always control is artist Keith D'Angelo's obsession. He calls himself a fire sculptor. D'Angelo was raised in Carbondale, Colorado. He now lives in Denver. And he reveals a new work this week at the Telluride Fire Festival. He'll present the same piece later this month during the Fire Arts Festival in Breckenridge. Who knew Colorado had two fire festivals? Uh, The piece is titled Love. And Keith, welcome to the program. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Describe this piece, Love. So Love is... To the point, it's the word love in plain text um, created from four-and-a-half-inch steel piping, recycled steel piping that comes out of the oil fields. And within that four-and-a-half-inch piping is a smaller gas line that runs through it where I pump propane through and drill out little 16th-inch holes uh, for jets for the gas to come through and then um, light that on fire and you get the word love out of fire. So... Uh, really to the point, simple, um, and the word love out of fire, I think, for me, is uh, it's really powerful. Is it symbolic, the materials you use? You talk about them being recycled from oil fields. Um, I wouldn't say they're symbolic. That's just more, I don't know, a point of pride for me. I have a background in sustainability, and uh, being able to work with recycled materials is uh, its just something that I really enjoy, be able to take something that might just be trash or laying on the side of the road or just in a yard somewhere for who knows how long and then turning it into art um, is uh, it's it's just a great process for me. You mostly work in propane and steel. I'm curious, uh, when you're at these fire arts festivals, what other types of sculptures are out there? Um, I think that steel, stainless steel is the most popular, but um, also I have some friends around the state that make really cool giant sculptures out of wood as well. 
and then um, light them on fire and we watch them burn down to the ground. So that's also really powerful to create something just to burn down into nothing. So that's another great medium to work with fire in. Interesting. Yeah, something that's so ephemeral. What's the most ambitious fire sculpture you've had a hand in? That would probably be back in, I believe it was 2011 in Telluride. A good friend of mine, um, Anton Viditz Ward, uh, makes giant, massive sculptures that essentially are big cages and he puts wood inside of them and spins them in all different directions. And these things are 30, 40 feet, 50 feet big and uh, spins these cages of fire and just throws sparks everywhere and um, just really big, massive, heavy structures throwing sparks everywhere. Really, really impressive uh, yeah, intense works of art. Sounding. Yeah, intense sounding. Intense both to make and to, and to watch, I guess. How did you get interested in, in fire art? And have you been burned? Um, I have been burned. I feel like I burn myself nearly every time I'm playing with the fire art, to be honest. But um, nothing too serious. Knock on wood. But um, I've been going to a, a Burning Man since it's a festival in Nevada. Yo. Uh, since uh, 2004. And uh, they do a lot of fire sculpture out there. And it really just caught my eye, intrigued me, caught my heart, really. I think that working with fire... Um, being that it's intangible, but still, as you put it, you know, trying to control something that's not so easily controlled um, is just, you know, it just speaks to me. And then being able to kind of convey my feelings through this un- intangible medium, um, it's it's just really it's just really fun. You have to contend, I imagine, with nature as well, because if these are outdoor pieces, and one, I suppose, if they're really big, you'd hope that they would be outdoors. You've got rain, you've got wind. Uh, These are variables you can't control as an artist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, with my with my sculptures being that they're uh, the fuel is propane, um, the way that they can kind of dance in the wind, and it's always changing, and there's this this dynamic of the fuel, the wind, uh, you know, the rain. I've had times when I've been trying to show a piece and it's so windy that you simply can't show it and then you're just kind of standing around waiting for the wind to die down. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of uncertainty, which is, you know, it's a, it's a great dynamic. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with fire sculptor Keith D'Angelo, who lives in Denver. His latest creation is called Love. I suppose you could say that it's literally burning love, um, and you'll be able to see it during the Telluride Fire Festival this week or next week at the Fire Arts Festival in Breckenridge. Uh, were you fascinated with fire as a kid? I mean, it sounds like you discovered fire maybe a bit later in life as an art form, but would you say the fascination was, was older than that? I, I would say so, yeah, definitely. I think there was a time I was maybe seven or eight years old, and... I got in some trouble because me and a couple of friends were lighting spray paint cans on fire and making little blow torches in my garage about two feet away from a propane tank. And uh, Oh, goodness. It's, it's yeah. a wonder you're here right now. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty lucky. Um, my dad was, uh, was sure to make sure that that wasn't going to happen again. But um, I guess you could say I have been into it for a while. Do people have judgments? When you tell them you're a fire artist, in other words, I wonder if they make a leap and say, oh, he's a pyro or something. I haven't come across that so much. Um, I think for me, you know, being that fire is my medium, 
my sculptures aren't really meant to be seen unless they are on fire. So sometimes I feel like people kind of look at it and are like, oh, yeah, nice art or something like that. You know what I mean? So um, I don't know about being dubbed a pyro. I haven't heard it, but maybe people think so. <laughs> okay, know. maybe people don't think it. I'm the only one who said it. Gosh, now I feel like a jerk. <laughs> no, not at all. What would you like to do with fire that you haven't? Bigger. Bigger. Bigger, yeah. Just, just I love just watching the flame. So the more flame, the better. And have you, f- have you found ways to get more flame? In other words, is that just a question of burning more fuel, or are there other variables involved? Um, there are some other variables involved. I've seen some really cool pieces um, with mixing, you know, air and oxygen in with propane to create more of like a like a jet type of like really powerful flame and then also mixing in some chemicals to give different colors and flames but oh that's interesting different colors yeah yeah yeah. so i think uh, magnesium is one of them and you can get like powdered magnesium and um there's a couple different ways that you can add it to the fuel um i haven't started quite at experimenting with that but i've seen it and it's 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 really cool um but as, as far as for my sculpture i just turn it up turn it up turn it up more fuel more fuel it strikes me that this is part art and part engineering as well. And have you had to learn a good deal of science to make this work or just of engineering in general? Um, um, I wouldn't say so much. My pieces are, are really simp- simplistic. You know, that's kind of something uh, that's just, I guess, my way of creating. But, um, yeah, my, mine are super simple. Some of my friends, that piece that I was telling you about at Burning Man that I worked with, lots of engineering going on. Um, but but my pieces are really pretty simple. What are these fire festivals like? Is it just fire sculpture? What other kind of fire artists attend? These fire sculpt uh, festivals are great. We have um, all different types of fire performers, fire breathers, people dancing with fire in different ways, um, musical fire instruments. Um, oh. There, there's a total. There's a, there's a plethora of different ways of um, working with fire in some sort of artistic fashion. So they're really neat, really, really pretty cool. I feel like I have seen an organ that shoots fire out of its uh, tubes, for lack of a better term. Is that something you've seen? I haven't seen that piece yet. Okay. Um, but I, I believe that's going to be in Telluride later this week. Okay. And I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, I would be too. Thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Keith D'Angelo, a fire sculptor who lives in Denver. As we said, his latest creation is called Love, and you can see it at the Telluride Fire Festival this week or next at the Fire Arts Festival in Breckenridge. Ashes to ash and fuck to fuck it. We know major talks are drunken. Finally today, the Colorado connection to David Bowie, who died Sunday at age 69. Around the time he recorded this song, Ashes to Ashes, Bowie was in Denver working on another project. He portrayed John Merrick in the play The Elephant Man. Bowie fine-tuned his performance in Colorado before taking the role to Broadway. They sort of played safe and put me somewhere so I could die a quiet death. Right. (laughs) uh, Denver. And we did a week there and then we did three weeks in Chicago. And then they felt that I was right for the big time. David Bowie from a 1980 interview. Read more about his life, music, and acting stint in Denver at openaircpr.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Michael Hughes, Michael DeYuana, and Stephanie Wolf. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters, on Facebook, CPR News, or reach out to us by email. Click contact at the top of CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. But no smoking.